0: We're about to open the Word, and uh, our our goal when we open God's Word is to see what God says. It's to, it's to see what's there and to take it in and to apply it to our lives so that we can glorify Christ and know Him and be changed. And so we're excited to do that. Uh, before we open it, I just want to also just, because I haven't really gotten to do this yet, just formally say thank you to the church for all your prayers for us this last month. Uh, both when we all got sick with the flu, which I know most of you did too, but uh, having getting sick and then having Molly Jane arrive a few weeks ago. Um, she's two and a half weeks old now, and she's doing well. Candace is doing well. They're actually home today again because Lucy's sick again, and so appreciate continued prayers. But just the prayers, the meals, text of encouragement, we just feel very loved by the body and, and uh, very thankful to be part of this church. So thank you uh, for all the ways you've expressed love to us the last few weeks. I also want to thank uh, Tyler Haynes and Joey Boyd for preaching the last three Sundays. Uh, all three excellent sermons, and and again, just uh, they're excellent because these men just diligently labored to to understand the word and then to say what the word said to us. And so, uh, thank you for faithfully preaching the word and strengthening the body, uh, praying praying for the fruit of those sermons in our lives. Uh, you can open your Bible to 2 Thessalonians, I was about to say 1 Thessalonians, but we are in 2 Thessalonians now. Uh, we're in a series called Until He Comes, and Joey got us started in this series the last few weeks, and and I'm just as I began studying this week's passage, I'm just very excited this morning about this passage. And here's why I'm excited, because overall, just as the Lord has been teaching me and And as I've been reflecting on on our body and and on where we are going as a church, one thing that the Lord has been convicting me of that, that this just needs to be true of Redeemer Church is that we need to be just as known for our praying as our preaching. We need to be just as known for our commitment to prayer as we are for our commitment to the Word. So, so when when people come to Redeemer, we we often tell them that we're a church that's about the Bible and that we preach the Scriptures and that we want to know what God says, and that is good. That is a good thing to be known for. But could someone walk in to our church, and walk into any activity of our church and say those people, they pray, they just kept, they just they just seem to really believe that God hears them when they pray, and, and they seem to really. To really enter into that with confidence and with joy and with pleasure that the, the this church yeah they're all about the Bible, but they're also all about prayer that's the kind of church we want to be because the word without prayer brings no fruit, just like prayer without the word brings no fruit God has designed the word and prayer to come together in our lives and in our church and so so god's been just leading me to ask, how can we grow? In our prayers, and even in this morning's service, you might notice that we're praying more today than we, we maybe pray other times, because we need to pray together. We need to be marked by that. That said, prayer prayer is one of the greatest blessings, and it's also one of the hardest duties of the Christian life. Prayer is hard, church. It's hard. Peter says in 1 Peter, to be sober-minded for the sake of your prayers, which, which I take to mean that that prayer comes with challenges, then we need to work at it, right? The disciples heard Jesus praying, and, and they saw how he prayed. And they came to him, and they said, Lord, teach us to pray. Lord, teach us to pray, which implies we need to learn to pray. We're not good at it. We don't know what to pray. We don't know how to pray. You obviously do, Lord. Will you teach us to pray? And this morning, we get a chance to look at a prayer of Paul and to come to this passage with, with that posture. Lord, will you teach us to pray? Because we, we need to grow. We need to grow in our prayers. All of us do. We, we all struggle with prayer. And God, when, when He gives us prayers in Scripture, one of the things He's doing is He is He is teaching us how to pray. He is He is shaping us and, and helping us to see this is. How we should go about this work of prayer that he's called us to. And as we do, we'll find the blessing of prayer. And so, all of that to say, I'm just excited to look at this together because we need it. Because as we grow in this, we will be blessed by it. We will have joy in this. And I believe God will bear much fruit through us as we devote ourselves to prayer. And so, let's look at 2 Thessalonians. And, and what we're going to do is read verses 1 through 12. Uh, as Joey has said, this is a unit in the book. This is Paul's. Uh, really introduction to this second letter. And what we saw in verses 1 through 4 was a thanksgiving for God's grace. He he was thanking God for the grace that he has uh, given to the Thessalonians that's borne fruit in their lives. And then verses 5 through 10 is a defense of God's justice. This church was suffering. This church was being persecuted. From, from, From all appearances, it didn't look like God was being just. And Paul And those those verses says God is a righteous judge and justice is coming. And he will bring justice when Christ returns. And so we do thanksgiving for God's grace and defense of God's justice. And then this morning we'll see a prayer for God's glory. And so let's read verses 1 through 12. And then we'll look closely today at verses 11 and 12. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 1 through 12. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Look closely with me at how verse 11 begins. It says, To this end, we always pray for you. To this end, we always pray for you. Other translations say something along the lines of, With this in mind, we always pray for you. What What he's saying is, in light of what I just said, we always pray for you. And so we need to ask, what did Paul just say? Look again, he says, The Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who don't know God on those who don't obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. To this end, with this in mind, we always pray for you that Jesus is going to be revealed from heaven. Jesus is coming back. And when he comes back, he's going to be revealed in glory. Think think about the description, in flaming fire with mighty angels. Powerful, glorious, public revealed from heaven, and what's he going to do when he comes back? He's going to inflict vengeance on those who don't know God, and he's going to be glorified in those who do know God. He's going to punish those who don't obey the gospel, and he's going to be marveled at among those who have believed in the gospel. That day's coming. Jesus will appear, and all of humanity for all of time will be split into two. Those who knew and obeyed the gospel and those who did not. Verse 9 is a sobering verse. He says, They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. This, This verse describes the condemnation that will come on all those who don't know Christ. And here's what we need to see about that verse. Just, just As we jump into this prayer today, we need to understand what is in Paul's mind. The destruction that's coming is, is described in the Bible in many ways. A lake of fire, gnashing of teeth, where the worm never dies. All of these are images to describe the suffering of hell. Will there be a literal lake of fire? We, we don't know. We know it's an image to describe the suffering of hell. But what is hell? What is the punishment? It is being away from the presence of the Lord. That's what hell is. It's being away from the God of life. It's being away from the glory of his might. It's being separated from God. And all those images in scripture, all they are is to, is to try to describe how awful it will be to be separated from God forever and ever. And, and that, that's going to come when Jesus comes. When, when he returns, that's the punishment that he will pronounce on all those who don't know him, all those who sinned against him, is that, is that from then on, forever and ever and ever, they will be away from God. They, they, they won't have God. And you can think of any image in Scripture to try to describe that reality and how awful it will be, but, but the essence of it is away from his presence. That, that's what's going to happen to those who don't know Jesus, those who don't, those who don't trust in Jesus. But for those who do trust in Jesus, what's gonna happen? He says that they're going to they're gonna see him, he's gonna deliver them from their suffering, and they are going to see his glory and marvel at it. And he's going to be glorified in them, and they're going to behold his glory forever and ever. It's the exact opposite of the punishment. It's it's the beholding of his glory and joy forever and ever. That day's coming. Joey said last week: suffering will end. Suffering will finally end. And we will behold the glory of Jesus forever. That day is coming. With this in mind, Paul says, we pray for you. And so this prayer, this prayer is based on this perspective of Jesus' return. It's it's based on this perspective of his return. And, And I believe that if we pray without a perspective of Christ's return in our minds, it's like me trying to function without my glasses on, Or I can't tell who any of you are right now. I can't, and I, 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 I couldn't navigate this room, I couldn't drive, and, and just imagine if I'm trying to live my life without vision, that's, that's what we're doing when we pray without thinking of the return of Christ, is, is we are praying disorientedly. We don't know where we're going. We don't know what we should be praying for. We don't, we're just stumbling over ourselves in prayer unless it's informed by this perspective of Christ's return. And so, Lord, teach us to pray. Here's what God would say today, is that, is that if you want to grow in prayer, you need to grow in letting Jesus' coming again inform your prayers. Letting that day inform how you pray today. And, church, we, Joey talked about in his prayer we have significant trials in our lives. We have significant sufferings. We have significant difficulties. You cannot rightly pray about those things without a perspective on the return of Christ. And so this is very relevant today because we all have things in our lives that we need prayer for. We all have things in our lives that we need to go to God with and say, help me with this. But if we don't come with the perspective of his return, we're not going to know what to pray for. We're not going to know how to pray. We're not going to persevere in prayer. And so so today we want to see how this perspective changed how Paul prayed, how it transformed how Paul prayed. So we're going to see four ways that the return of Christ transforms our prayers. Four ways that the return of Christ transforms our prayers. The first thing we see is in The beginning of verse 11, he says, To this end, we always pray for you. To this end, we always pray for you. One of the most remarkable things about the Apostle Paul is that he constantly prayed for all the churches. Every letter he writes, he says, He says, I'm praying for you all the time. All these churches all around the world that he's been, he's he's always praying for them. And I know for myself, God, I struggle just to pray regularly for those closest to me in my life. Yet yet Paul persevered and and was faithful in praying for all those churches all the time. And and you ask, how how did he keep that up? How, How did he not grow tired of that? How did he not grow weary of that? How did he do that? And here Paul tells us, with this in mind, to this end, we always pray for you. What he's saying there is that this perspective of Jesus returning is the thing that leads me to always pray for you. As I reflect on the return of Christ, it drives me to prayer. So the first way is that Jesus' return fuels our prayers. His return fuels our prayers. What he's saying is this, when I think about the return of Christ, it compels me to pray for you. We have to ask, what's the connection there? What what is the connection? Why why would thinking about Christ's return compel Paul then to to pray so faithfully and perseveringly for all these people in his life? Well, if you would turn turn with me to Luke chapter 18. Keep your place in Second Thessalonians, turn back to Luke chapter 18. Jesus told this parable, Luke 18, we'll read 1 through 8, and he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man, and there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Let me ask you guys a few questions. Luke tells us in verse 1, what is the point of this parable? That they ought always to pray, right? So we know what he's aiming for here. He's aiming for his disciples to be people who always pray and they don't lose heart as they do that. So, so so Jesus knows that we are tempted to lose heart. He knows that it's hard to persevere in prayer. He knows that it's hard to keep going, but he's, he's, he's given us this parable to say, always do it. Never stop. Don't lose heart. Now, now what's the parable itself show us? It shows us this, this judge who has no regard for God and has no regard for man. He just lives for himself, and this widow comes who needs justice and she she cries out to him day and night and he's ignoring her, ignoring her, but finally he says, I can't take it anymore. I'll give you justice so that you go away. And his point is if that's what would happen with an unrighteous judge for someone who continued to ask, then what would happen for a righteous God if we continued to ask him? If an unrighteous judge would ultimately listen, what about a righteous God who has chosen us as we cry out to him day and night? He says he's not going to delay. He's going to bring justice speedily. Now we wonder, it doesn't seem that fast sometimes, right? But a day with the Lord is like a thousand years for us, and a thousand years is like a day. Jesus knows that we will be tempted to lose heart, but he calls us to look at the character of God, which Joey looked at last week with us, that he is a righteous judge. And he says, because God is a righteous judge, keep praying to him. Keep praying for God to bring about his kingdom in your life and keep praying for justice to come. Then, then he gives a challenge. Look at the end of, the, of verse 8. He gives a challenge. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? So Jesus says, there will be a day when I come back. When I come, will I find people who are praying? Will I find people who have continued? Find people who have not lost heart? Find people who believe that God is a righteous judge, who believe that he will keep his promises? Here's the thing. Paul was one of those men. Paul was a man who believed that God was a righteous judge. Paul was a man who believed Jesus was coming again. And so he didn't lose heart when he prayed for people. He he, he continually persevered in praying for the churches. No matter what was going on, whether there was sin, there was trial, there was suffering, he just continued to pray for them over and over because he knew Jesus was coming back. Paul's belief that God is a righteous judge who will save his people and execute his judgment gave him the perseverance he needed to keep praying. And, And so the application for us this morning is to pray with persevering faith. Pray with persevering faith. I was going to ask you, what have you grown weary of praying for? What, what have you grown weary of asking God to do in your life? Or in the lives of those around you? What, what have you prayed for in the past that you've just given up praying for that? Jesus would say, one day I'm coming back. I'm going to make everything right. I hear you. I'm for you. I have saved you. I've called you to myself. Don't lose heart. Keep praying. Keep on praying. And so, church, this morning I want to encourage you to know that because Jesus is returning, that until he comes, we should never stop. We don't know what God is going to do. We don't know why he delays, but we know who he is. A righteous judge, a father who loves us, and he has good purposes for waiting. He has good purposes for not answering in his timing, but he calls us to keep praying. So Jesus' return fuels our prayers. It fuels our prayers. We see that with Paul. But also, just before we move on, just that, that begs us to ask the question, if we struggle to pray, if we struggle to pray, then, then the answer is not just try harder. The answer is y- you need to get a perspective of Christ's return. If you're not moved to prayer regularly, then you're probably not really focused on the return of Christ. You're not fixing your heart on the blessed hope that we have as Christians. If you're not praying regularly, it, it it's what compels Paul to pray, and it, it's what fuels him to prayer. So that's point number one. Jesus' return fuels our prayers. the number two, how, how else does Jesus' return transform our prayer life? Number two is it is that his return shapes our prayers. It shapes our prayers. Look, look at verse 11 again. He says, to this end, we always pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. Okay, so his return shapes our prayers. Remember, church, the Thessalonians are a persecuted church. They they, they are suffering. They have poverty. They have they, they have issues with their jobs. They they, they are being being pursued and persecuted and afflicted by their culture. Paul knows this. He knows they're hurting. He's writing to them in their hurt. And here he prays for them. He does not pray, God, take away the persecution. He does not pray, God, take away the suffering. He does not pray, God, make things better for them, make things easier for them. And the reason he doesn't is because Paul is informed by the return of Christ. The reason he doesn't pray for that is because he knows that one day the suffering will end. He knows that God is in control of the suffering and that God has a purpose for the suffering now, that, that God is a righteous judge. He will do those things in his time, but he knows right now God is doing other things. Things that have to do with the return of Christ. And so look what he does pray for. He, he really prays for two things. He prays for their walks and their works. Look at this. He prays for their walks and their works. First, he says that our God may make you worthy of His calling. That our God may make you worthy of His calling. Now, what that does not say is that God would make you worthy of being called. That makes sense. He's not. He's not saying that God would make you worthy of being called, as if as if He would make you good enough to call you. No. What it's saying is that God has already called you. That calling's done. It's, it's, it's sealed through Christ. He has called you to himself. It, it's, it's a prayer that your life would increasingly reflect that calling. And so th- let's think about our calling for a minute. God has called us into his kingdom. He's called us into his kingdom. So what does it mean to live worthy of that calling? It means that we would live as citizens of heaven. That in our lives here and now, that our lives would look like we belong to the kingdom of heaven, not to the kingdom of this world. God has called us into his family. He's adopted us as his sons and daughters. So what does it look like to live worthy of that calling? It means we live like children of God. We reflect his holiness. We reflect his character. Jesus has called us to be his disciples. So so how do we live worthy of that calling? It means we follow him. It means we do what he says. It means we we imitate the life he lived. That, that, that's what Paul's is praying for their walks, that they would live worthy of their calling, that 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 that. The calling of God and their lives, we get closer and closer so that we reflect what he's done. We reflect the calling that he's given us because he's called us, not to earn it, but because he's already done it. So so that's the first thing Paul prays for. He prays for their, their walks with him. But then look, he also prays for their works. He says, and that God may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. So, this is a great prayer. Look at what it implies. It implies that the Thessalonians have resolves for good, doesn't it? Saying that God may fulfill your resolve for good. So, 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 so that would mean that, that the Thessalonians are in their own minds and hearts, in their own lives, they, they're thinking, what good things can I do? What, what works of faith could I pursue? think about that for your own life right now so think about it in in your family what 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 good things do I want to see happen in my family y- you should be thinking about that and resolving that so, saying saying I, I want to I want to let Christ have an impact on my family think about your neighborhood maybe you've never thought about this before you can you can ask what resolve for good could I have in my neighborhood what work of faith could I have for those around me? What about your workplace? How, how could I do good works in my workplace? You're just thinking. As a church, we've done this together a little bit. Some of you have said, let's, let's do a vacation Bible school. That's a resolve for good. That's, we we want to see, see this community impacted with the gospel. We want to do a vacation Bible school. so we, That's a resolve for good. And What Paul is praying is that God would bring those resolves in our own minds and hearts to fruition. He's praying that God would, by his power, turn that thought into reality in their lives. And it's because Paul knows that we are in the world to be the light of the world. Church, we are in the world to be the light of the world. If, if, if God didn't want us to be a light, then, then his plan would be over, and we would all be in heaven with him. But we're still here because we're called to be a light in the world that lets our light shine so more and more people can see his glory. And so Paul knows that, that as long as we're here, until Jesus comes again, we need to be pursuing good works. And through those good works, God is going to further his work of redemption. Does that make sense? And, and so this prayer then, so see, here's the thing, all those plans you just made, if you just pursue them headlong, will probably fail. <laughs> because God is pleased to do those things when we pray to him to do it. Because that, that, what does that do? That gives him the glory. Right? When, when, when we say, God, we, we want to see this happen for your glory, would you please bring it about so that so that by your power, you are glorified in it happening, in, in that fruit coming. And let's, let's just think a little bit more about even our, our church. Why was Redeemer Church planted? We were planted here because the people of Anderson Bible Church and the people of Grace Fellowship had a resolve for good in this community. They had a resolve for good to reach this community with the gospel. This week I was praying, God, fulfill the resolve for good of Anderson Bible Church and Grace Fellowship Church by allowing Redeemer Church to reach more people in Oxford. Do it by your power. That's how Paul calls us to pray here, and that's what he's praying for the Thessalonians is, is, is find these resolves for good, find these works, and ask God, bring it to fruition. Bear fruit. Let our light shine. So he prays for their walks and their works. He's not praying for relief from suffering. He's praying for the church to make a holy impact in the midst of their suffering. That's what he's praying for, a holy impact. Knowing that one day this life will end and eternity will begin. We want to make a holy impact on those around us. That should be our prayer if Jesus is coming again. You know, at Secret Church last year. We that, that's uh, again David Platt's ministry. Radical puts on this this thing called Secret Church every year, where where they uh, spend six hours essentially imitating the persecuted church, which which can't gather like this on Sunday mornings. They have to gather in secret for large chunks of time and get as much as they can until they can meet again. And and during that night, you're you're learning that you're you're doing that together, but then you're also praying for the church. And last year, uh, they they brought prayer requests from the persecuted church that they said, pray for us this way. And again, you know what? They didn't pray for relief from their suffering. They didn't pray for things to change. Here's what they prayed for. They prayed for faithfulness to the word, that they wouldn't compromise. They prayed for love for other Christians. They prayed for boldness to continue to share the gospel. They prayed that they would not fear, but that they would continue on. And it's because the persecuted church much more probably than we do, has, has an understanding that this world is not our home. We're so comfortable here, and we build our lives here, and we love our lives here, and it's that's, that's not bad in itself, but we need to realize that this is not it. This is not it. God is working through us right now, but one day Jesus is coming again. And, and so what's the application? Jesus' return shapes our prayers, and, and that means that we need to let his return Help us to pray with the right priorities. Pray with eternal priorities. Pray with eternal priorities. And, and so here's the rub is that you've got things going on in your life, right? We all have trials. We all have difficulties. We all have sufferings. We all have needs. God wants us to bring those needs to him. He's not saying ignore those. He's not, he's not saying don't bring those. We, we talked about it in Build this morning that, that God says, cast your cares upon me because I care for you. But what we want to do is bring those needs and we want to connect them to the perspective that Jesus is coming again. And so here's how you can pray. Ask yourself this question. 40 billion years from now, what would I pray for about this situation? Not, not what do I want right now, but what would matter about this in eternity? What, what would matter about this once this life is done and the next life has begun? And then let that inform your prayer. Pray that way. Pray with that eternal perspective. How would I tell myself to pray once I've been in heaven for thousands and thousands of years beholding the glory of Christ? If I could go back and say, okay, pray this way, what, what, would, what would I tell myself? Pray that way for these things. Also, church, just, just I will ask, are you praying for your walk? Are you praying for each other's walks? When we pray, are we are we prioritizing holiness? Are we prioritizing Christ-likeness? Are we only prioritizing God helping us day to day with just the needs of our lives to make it easier? Now, Again, that's not bad intention, but that's not, if that's what we're valuing, then we're missing it, church. We need, we need to pray for each other that God would make us worthy of his calling. So again, connect those needs to that request and then are you praying for your work so are you praying that God would lead you to have good resolves to make an impact on others in this world and to bring those things to fruition are you praying that way for the church that God would allow this church to make an impact a holy impact in this community Th- these are eternal priorities that the return of Christ would give us the perspective to pray for these things and so Jesus return shapes our prayers this way pray with eternal priorities. Third, Jesus' return directs our prayers. So it fuels our prayers, it shapes our prayers, and it directs our prayers. Look at verse 12. Paul says, So that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him. So if you would look back at verse 10, what does Paul say about the day that Jesus returns? He says, When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed. So the day that Jesus returns, here's what's going to happen, is that Jesus will be glorified in his church. That, that, that as the church, as the bride of Christ is brought to glory, Jesus will be glorified in that, and that we will, we will glorify him as we marvel at his face. So, so Paul has that picture in his mind, and then what he's doing is he's bringing that, that future reality into the present day. And he's saying, we want to see this happening now. It won't happen in full till he comes. But we want to see it happening right now. We want to see Jesus being glorified in the church and through the church. We, we, we want to see the church giving him glory and being shown as glorious in Jesus. He, he says that that his name may be glorified in you. And what that means is that, is that we would live lives that magnify the glory of Christ, that, that that we would always be pointing people to the glory of Christ, pointing them to his name, pointing them to his goodness, pointing them to his grace, and, and saying, Jesus is glorious. But then he also says, and you and him. And you and him, which, which that has a different nuance. It's not just that we point to the glory of Christ, it's that we actually become like the glory of Christ. Now, we aren't glorious, we don't have any glory to, to contribute to this picture. But as Jesus works in us and makes us more like him, we actually become a picture of the glory of Christ to the world. We become more and more like him. Think about it. We are called the body of Christ. And we grow up into the stature of the fullness of Christ, what Ephesians says. So we we grow to reflect his glory more and more. So this this is kind of a silly illustration, but I think it it helps with this because it's kind of an abstract concept. What does it mean that Jesus is glorified in us and us in him? Well, think about in basketball when a superstar joins a team of nobodies, all right? You got a team of nobodies that, that, that they just cannot win a game. They cannot buy a shot. They, they're awful. But then a superstar joins that team, and what happens? That, that team all of a sudden, that, that superstar is the best player on that team, but he's also making everyone around him better. And all of a sudden, they're all, they're all playing like they actually know how to play basketball, right? And, and everyone sees this happening, and then eventually this team wins the championship, all right? What happens in that moment? Okay, the superstar gets all the glory, all right? But over that, guys, he gets all the glory because they know he was the best player on that team, and he made everyone around him better. And, and so even though these other people did play a part in that, because he made them better, they contributed. That no one's talking about bench warmer five over here, right? No one's talking about him. They're talking about one person who, who really gets all the credit for it. But they also get to share in that, don't they? They get to share in that championship. They get to share in that victory. I know that's silly. I know it breaks down. Let's not analyze it too much, okay? But <laughs> but I think that there's something analogous going on with, with what he's saying here is that Jesus will get all the glory. But he has bound his glory to the church. It's an amazing thing to realize, that that Jesus is not going to get glory in a vacuum on that day. He's going to get glory in the church. And right now, we get to be displaying that glory as a church. We get to be pointing to his glory and displaying it through our walks and our works. You guys see that? And so, when we pray these prayers... If Jesus' return is directed in our prayers, then we should be praying with a singular purpose. Guys, you, you all, myself included, we all are busy people. We've got a lot of things going on. Work and school and family and church and community and relatives. We've got a lot of things going on. We've got a lot of needs to pray for. We have a lot of things to pray for. And it can get overwhelming, and and we we can become scatterbrained and distracted, and, and sometimes feel almost crushed by how much there is to do and how much there is to pray for. But here's the thing if we have a thousand prayer requests, we can bring them all into this one request God, all of it, so that Jesus may be glorified in us and us in Him. Pray with a singular purpose. Let, let, let your life be unified around this purpose, that Jesus will be glorified in the church and the church in him. Unify all your requests under that one grand purpose. And, and if that is not your prayer right now, then, then begin by asking God to grow your delight in the glory of Christ. You're not, you're not ever going to want to pray that prayer if you don't actually delight in his glory yourself. And, and so... Pray, hallowed be your name. God, let me see how great and glorious Jesus really is. Lead me to the cross. And let me behold his glory so that I can pray this way. Finally, Jesus' return fuels our prayers, shapes our prayers, directs our prayers. But finally, his return grounds our prayers. Grounds our prayers. Look at the end of verse 12. He, he, he says, according to the grace of of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now remember, he's praying with the return of Christ in mind. He's thinking about that day, but, but here he says, I'm gonna I'm gonna base this prayer on the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. And here's what I think is happening that, that the return of Christ is a day of judgment, is it not? That's so what he says, it, this is the day that the righteous judge pronounces judgment on the world. When Jesus returns, he comes as a judge, and every one of us will give an account for our lives. And so as, as we think about that day, we should be terrified. We, we, we should know I, if Jesus is going to look at every thought, every action, every, every word that came from my mouth for my whole life, I, I have no chance of standing before the judgment of Christ. Yet, we're not terrified this morning, are we? We're not terrified this morning because of the gospel, because Jesus took the judgment already. On the cross, Jesus took the final judgment we deserve. He he took our sins. He paid the penalty for them, so that now we look forward to that day instead of fear that day. The the day he comes is is a day of hope for us. It's a day of salvation. It's a day we look forward to. And, And so as we think about the return of Christ, it drives us to think about his grace. It drives us to realize I will not stand that day unless I'm standing in the cross. And so this means that we relate to God every day on the basis of His grace. From, from, from beginning to end is all of His grace. And, and we recognize that, that as we come to this work of prayer, we come grounded in His grace, come basing every request on His grace. We don't come basing it on our works. We don't pray when we feel we're good enough. We don't not pray when we feel like we've sinned. We come realizing that we come to pray on the basis of what God has already done for us in Christ, not on the basis of how we're living our lives right now. Church, we, we are tempted to pray on the basis of works. We are saved by grace, but we are tempted to pray on the basis of works. Let me ask you, have you never felt, will God not say yes to this prayer because of my sin? Have you ever felt that way? Or have you ever felt, I'm doing really good right now with my devotions. So I, I feel pretty good about my prayers right now. Have you ever felt those ways? When you, when you, when you have that mentality, maybe you never said it so explicitly, but, but we come on a basis of works. We come as if our prayers depend on how we're living our lives. We, we come like it's a business transaction. You know, if I if I go to the car dealership to get a car, I need to make sure I have enough money in my account. I need to make sure that I can buy that car and that I've, I have saved up enough to give him so that I can get what I need. But that's how we treat God in prayer so often is that is that we need to store up enough good equity with God that, that when we make a request, he, he will answer yes because we've been living a good life. But we don't come to him if we don't think we have enough. We, we, we try to get our lives back in order. We try to do better. We And... and and we, we treat it like, like it's a business transaction. But, but really, prayer is like getting help from a good friend. It's like going to a loving father. Prayer is, is coming to someone and saying, listen, I, I need a car. I don't have money for a car. I don't deserve a car. But I know you love me. I know you have a car. <laughs> right? And, and you come and, and, you, and you appeal on the basis of the love that you know God has for you. What this means, church, is that we can pray with humble confidence. Humble confidence. We're humble because we know we don't deserve it. We're humble because we know that if if it was based on how we're living our lives, that we would never have any prayer answered. So we come confessing our sin. We come confessing who we really are before the Lord, but we also come with confidence because we're confessing the gospel. We come with confidence because Jesus said, if you pray in my name, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. That, that is confidence, church. Jesus has said, if you pray in my name, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. And the reason he said that is because if you're praying in my name, it means you're praying, trusting in my cross, trusting in my work for you, trusting in my grace. And so Paul does not conclude this prayer saying, according to my righteous standing with God, because God thinks I'm doing well, I'm going to pray this for you. And, and, And No, he says, according to the grace of God, I'm praying this. And so we can make requests boldly on the basis of grace. We, we, we can have a boldness with God that no one else in the world can have to come to him and say, God, would you please do this? And it's not based on us. It's based on Christ. And it's based on his grace. And one day when he returns, we know that we will receive grace. Because Jesus has taken the judgment already. He has already taken our sin. He has put us in this relationship with him. And so, church, grace, conclude with this, and then we will take a time in prayer together, but grace invites us to prayer. The grace of God invites us into this praying relationship with Him. And, And what prayer is, ultimately, is communion with this God who has saved us. It is fellowship with this God who has loved us. It is coming to Him and enjoying life with Him now. And partnering with him now in what he's doing for his glory. The cross purchased your ability to pray. And so let's pray constantly, perseveringly, humbly, yet confidently, for the glory of Christ with eternity in view. Let's be a church that prays that way. Let's know that if we pray that way, God will hear, he does hear, he will answer, he will bear his work of fruit in our lives. We're going to conclude today a little differently. We're going to have a time of prayer. And Wes, you can come up and, and play a little bit as we, as we pray. But we're going to have three men in the church uh, take these prayers and, and pray them for us. And so we're going to pray for our walks this morning. Pray that God would make us to live worthy of His calling. And we're going to pray for our works as a church, that God would fulfill every resolve for good his power, and we're going to pray for his glory in us and through us. We're going to pray that Jesus would be glorified through this church.